Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Richard Jean So about redlining culture, a data history of racial inequality and post-war fiction. Um, So welcome to the podcast. Um, Thanks, Dave. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, Really grateful for this opportunity and looking forward to our uh, conversation. Uh, And I'm incredibly grateful that you've written this massively important book, uh, a book that I think does does two things. One, you know, makes a a, a really major contribution to our understanding of um, inequality and and particularly racial inequality um, in uh, the American publishing industry. But at the same time, I I think gives um, a fascinating kind of set of possibilities for um, what I guess you'd think of as kind of well-established methods, but uh, maybe some of our listeners might, might think more as kind of, you know, innovative, new and, and emerging uh, computational approaches. And maybe that's the place to start, actually. I wonder if you could say a bit about uh, the methods, you know, the kind of uh, approaches you, you had in the book and um, I guess why you wrote a book using this kind of uh, computational approach. Um, yeah, uh, great question. Thanks. Um, so, um, the, so scholars in English and American literature and American culture, American studies have been studying the post-war novel, post-war fiction, uh, post-war publishing for many, many years and the question of race. So this is a well-trodden topic in the scholarship. Um, so one question is why would I want to write a whole book exploring this topic that's been so well-researched and well-studied? And it's because, uh, very simply, there I had some questions about um, this post-war period in American culture regarding racial inequality and race, uh, particularly in light of um, 
the rise of or just the persistence of white nationalism, all these you know, persistent uh, racial problems and inequalities that persist, uh, that, that continue today. And uh, I wanted to write a book uh, because I wasn't really satisfied with these multiculturalism narratives, these stories and narratives of post-war American culture that really foreground um, the purported rise of multiculturalism. And I thought by looking at the looking at this period and looking at this question more empirically from the perspective of uh, data that we could collect, um, but also more uh, advanced statistical and computational methods like machine learning, that we could learn something new about this period um, and address this question of racial inequality that I feel has been not um, fully articulated or explained well enough in the current scholarship, which again has emphasized and foregrounded this again purported narrative of multiculturalism um, in the post-war period. Yeah, I, I guess what we learn um, from from your approach is you know you know to be slightly kind of skeptical about uh, narratives of progress, but because this idea of cultural redlining is is what's uh, actually been been the story of, of post-war American literature, and and, and I guess you, you know to, to an extent the kind of uh, the story of post-war American publishing as as much as um, American literature, um, and, and I was really taken by that term. Obviously, you know it's uh, in in the title of the book, but I guess it comes from sort of urban studies about you know racial inequality and, and segregation in um, North American cities, and and it'd be interesting. Um, for the listeners to hear about how you picked the title and, and what that uh, cultural redlining term is doing. Um, yeah, it's 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 a term that will probably be familiar to um, scholars of American society, American politics. Um, but the term comes from a series of sociological studies from the 1960s and 1970s, uh, particularly in Chicago and Harlem. And it's a very simple set of studies where researchers went door to door in predominantly black neighborhoods like Hyde Park in Chicago and Harlem in uh, New York City, and just asked people um, their racial identification, whether they're white or black or um, Asian American. And based on that, they were able to reconstruct a physical map of uh, the likelihood of certain neighborhoods getting bank loans from um, local banks. Um, and they drew lines around neighborhoods that were predominantly black, and they found that neighborhoods that are predominantly black um, and also uh, predominantly working class uh, would not were extremely unlikely to receive bank loans uh, from the banks that were in their communities. And this term redlining came about in that um, implicitly, both deliberately and unconsciously, banks were drawing lines around neighborhoods that they deemed as risky or undesirable um, and just were refusing to give bank loans to these uh, people who live in these communities. And this had profound, uh, devastating economic effects for these communities in that when people can't get loans, they can't uh, start businesses in their local communities, they can't um, economically develop their own communities. Um, and this this is a, a problem that gets compounded over time. So um, this is really well-known, important research in um, American uh, sociology, economics, political science. Um, I wanted to move this metaphor and this sort of approach very simply to the study of culture in that I wanted to see if we could produce a similar kind of map uh, for publishing uh, book culture, literary culture, in terms of the very simple question of um, are the coveted resources of book contracts um, book prizes, 
bestsellerdom? Are they fairly distributed amongst white and non-white authors? Or is there a similar kind of cultural relining effect where certain communities are excluded from these resources based um, on their race? And um, I just wanted to kind of connect this this question to your previous question, which is um, my methods are both extremely simple counting methods and also more complicated um, natural language processing, text mining methods. And the kind of headlining story of this, the redlining part, which is a simple counting, is that um, American publishing, mainstream publishing is 97% white over this period, 1950 to 2000. Book prizes are 91% white. Um, bestsellerdom is 98% white, which is a really staggering figure and so forth. Um, so that's really the redlining part that if just by simply counting um, the demo- the racial demographics of post-war literary culture from publishing to bestsellers to prize winners, it's, it's incredibly white and there's a real redlining effect. Um, but the other part of it is, and we can talk about this later in your questions, um, the less simple part of the quantitative uh, aspect of the book is that I also really want to see what's the impact of this on the kinds of stories, the texts, the kind of books that get written um, in this period too. And so my redlining metaphor continues in that literature is more than just counting you know, authors. It's, it's more than just the identity of authors. It's also the kind of stories we tell um, within the fictions. So, um, And I find that there's um, this inequality that we see at the author level translates into um, textual, formal narrative effects within the kind of stories that get published. It's worth also saying, um, you can take away, I guess, the headline of the book, which is precisely those numbers. And, you know, in some ways, those of us who are in this kind of space are like, yeah, you know, of course. Um, But, you know, hopefully, like, you know, (laughs) those of us who are not kind of, you know, sociologists of, of contemporary uh, and, and slightly historical culture will be, you know, shocked and appalled by um, the, the the sort of force of, of those numbers. But at the same time, you do a lot of reading in the book, and you do a lot of, um, I guess, you, you know, kind of history telling, uh, both of publishing houses and of authors. And if you've given the kind of perfect overview of um, the, the numbers, I, I wonder if you could tell me about Toni Morrison and, and why. Um, she matters to the book, um, and, and in some ways, the book is as much, you know, the kind of story of, of Toni Morrison, and, and particularly, you know, her um, kind of crucial role as, as a publisher, gatekeeper, as a, a literary figure, as it is the story of, you know, Random House being ninety uh, 97% white for 50 years. So yeah, um, what, why was she so kind of influential um, in, in your thinking about the book? Um, thanks. I, I'm really glad you picked up on that um, because I, I took out this paragraph where I explained Toni Morrison as the through line through all the different chapters. But I took it out because um, I I didn't want to put that pressure on Morrison. I, I had this interesting debate with my editor who um, we just decided that um, making it more implicit, so kind of careful readers like yourself would pick up on the the Morrison through line, but announcing it we thought might 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 put too much pressure um, on Morrison. And um, and the book is not, again, really about Morrison, although she's the, the backbone. Um, yeah, so Morrison's so important because the book really travels through four um, psych parts of the, the, the life cycle of, of post-war American fiction. 
which is publishing, to uh, reception, which is book reviews, and then uh, recognition, which is book prizes and book sales. And then finally, the university, what I call consecration, which is how books are received in the university. And um, Morrison's so great because um, the argument that the overall argument I really want to stress for scholars is that these narratives, these stories we've told about the post-war period, which we rely on Morrison uh, so uh, so much for because she's the most important, probably the most important writer of the post-war period, especially when it comes to race, that um, we, we've gotten something wrong um, in foregrounding her story so much. Um, the, again, the purported rise of multiculturalism. But what's really cool about Morrison is that she was also really active um, in all these other parts outside the academy with publishing. She was uh, very famously an editor at Random House and led this massive campaign to introduce Black writers at the press. She was also a well-known book reviewer and her book, book books were widely reviewed. And uh, she was one of the very, very, very few Black writers who won book prizes and also uh, wrote bestsellers. And um, I found this great quote that I start the book with um, from Morrison, where uh, usually we celebrate her time, where scholars really celebrate her time at Random House as an editor to say that, you know, she completely transformed the literary field. But when you actually read her interviews, she actually says, you know, like, I didn't really accomplish that much. And she said that, you know, the real story of post-war publishing is that publishers can only really handle one Black writer per publishing house. So she says, you know, this kind of disguises this broader inequality. So I found that Morrison's own story and her own pr- perspective, she really intuited this sort of cultural redlining. I think if she was still alive, that, you know, she would find these numbers really confirm her, her own intuition um, from her own experience working in the, in the literary industry. And but at the same time, you know, her books were so important in transforming the literary field. It's just that, again, I find that literary scholars have, um, I think, perhaps uh, over estimated the impact and focusing so much on a few exemplary uh, minority authors. And from that, we've created these narratives of multiculturalism, which are not entirely borne out um, by the material and the data. So, um, yeah, so just Morrison, I really, you know, I thought was perfect in that she connects the scholarly perspective with the on the ground perspective of what was really happening in post-war publishing and literary culture. Um, And I find that again, uh, her intuition is she's so intelligent and insightful um, and really anticipates the the kind of data map I provide of um, the post-war literary field, um, the redlining effects. I mean, what you picked up on there, you know, that idea about what well, publishers can only uh, kind of almost cope with uh, one minority author at any one given time is, it is almost true um, of reviewers as well and, and the middle of the book I think is is particularly interesting you've, you've talked about it you know as kind of uh, re- reception and then you know moving on to um, I, I guess you know ideas about um, value and, and winning prizes and, and so on and so forth and I think here is an opportunity to, to think about um, the way that even where you know tiny numbers in comparison to uh, their white counterparts of uh, authors are, are getting through the publishing system they're still um, I suppose running up against the wall of uh, a particular set of expectations a, a particular set of, of values and and this might be a good time actually to, to talk about some books which again you know is a, 
a kind of classic criticism of uh, computational or digital humanities methods is well, you know, well, what about the actual texts themselves? And and you pick out uh, Company Man, Son of Solomon, and the Joy Look Club to think about how they were viewed and, and received as ways of, of sort of nuancing um, some of your discussions, but also to kind of reinforce uh, the barriers and, and I guess the kind of quite constrained uh, expectations that in some ways allowed them to be successful, but also in other ways uh, meant that only very, you know, kind of partial and constrained representations were able to get through uh, reviewers' uh, views about what a minority story is and what a minority author should be doing. So it'd be interesting to hear about um, either one or, or maybe all of those uh, those books. Yeah, no, thank you. This is a great um, chance to pivot at actually talking about books, which, you know, I do a lot of close reading in, in the chapters. And um, I find the the data analysis and the text mining as an occasion to reread books that we have know a lot about, but also to discover books that we, we don't know much about to um, discover interesting outliers. So yeah, in that chapter on book reviews, um, so book reviews is an, you know, an attention economy and there's a lot of inequality, inequality built into that, meaning that book reviews in this period are 90 to 91% white. But the, the bigger problem, which you alluded to, is um, uh, book reviewers even when even within that inequality, which is pretty severe, they only tend to even only talk about specific kinds of novels written by minority authors, which gives the illusion that they are giving more attention to uh, minority writers, where you know ninety percent is better than ninety seven percent, which is what happens in publishing. But even with that marginal improvement in inequality, um, the chapter argues that um, the the range of white authors that get book reviewed is incredibly broad. I, I use this measurement called a Gini coefficient, which economists use to show that um, if you're a white author um, or, or if you're a book reviewer, the range of different kinds of books by white authors you would review from, say, science fiction to literary fiction is incredibly broad, whereas the range of book reviews that um, talk about Black writers is incredibly narrow. Um, it's really like Toni Morrison, you know, and today it would be like Colson Whitehead. And I do some close reading. I compare a book that was widely reviewed by um, book reviewers in this period, Song of Solomon, actually the most reviewed novel by a non-white uh, writer, again, a book by Toni Morrison, um, again, Song of Solomon, as as exemplar of the kind of book that book reviewers use to represent uh, Black literature versus this other book that I found in the data, which is a really cool book. It's called Company Man by Brett Wade. Um, and unless you are an expert on this period's Black literature, you probably have never heard of this writer. But I found that he was pretty widely reviewed in the Black press, but completely not reviewed in the white press or the kind of elite, you know, like New Yorker or New York Times. So it's a really striking contrast. So I do close readings of Song of Solomon versus Company Man to say, like, you know, like... Like, what's their difference, right? Why is one book deemed to represent Black literature, say the Black experience, and this other book is deemed to not? And what I find through the close reading is, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're really different, obviously, but I think the important thing is that um, Song of Solomon is, um, the, the two major things I would say is, uh, so, what's distinctive about Company Man is that it's, it's about um, a Black uh, gay man. 
So that's really distinctive in that um, a lot of the novels that are celebrated that by Black writers in this period tend not to foreground uh, Black masculinity or Black homosexuality. And the more subtle thing, though, is really about style. And the the, the elite press really valorizes a kind of Black postmodern, um, uh, how do I describe this? Um, uh, a, a specific uh, fig, like non non literal form of writing, whereas Company Man, it's an epistolary, and it really eschews elaborate metaphors, figurations. It's 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 really quite literal, and when it talks about things like wealth or race, it uses really literal images, like like a Lamborghini. Whereas in Song of Solomon, famously. Um, Toni Morrison uses this image of the, this kind of bag of gold, which is obviously meant to be highly metaphorical or allegorical. Um, it's not really like a, like a bag of gold, right? And, you know, and I just find that, which is fine, you know, like, you know, um, critics can like what they like, but the problem is it, it further intensifies that inequality of the 90% versus 10% because it says that only one kind of Black writer can stand for the Black experience. Because Brent Wade's story is also a story of Black America, and the way he writes is also how Black writers write. And that, to me, is is an important story, part of this redlining story, that it's not only are you excluding just quantitatively um, Black writers, you're only saying a very, very tiny handful of Black writers are even worth anyone's attention. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i think this is especially crucial because both in the kind of academic literature but i think we're we're, you know usefully actually seeing it in media or or popular sort of social media discussions you know a sense of a kind of a um a white set of reviewers or perhaps you know a kind of a monocultural uh system for um, making value judgments uh, about literature inevitably, and actually the same is true of cinema and, and, and music. You know, we're seeing these debates across uh, what we call it the cultural industries in, in the UK. It means that um, the breadth of stories, as you say, becomes narrow. The kinds of voices um, are almost um, deemed acceptable or not to quite a narrow. Um, in some cases, set of stereotypes, and, and you talk about them uh, quite a lot, actually, in, in the first chapter around um, what we might think of as kind of ne- negative or, you know, to be more uh, blunt about it, quite racist stereotypes um, in a variety of different uh, settings uh, across random houses output. 
I suppose the the other uh, element of contemporary worries and, and, and the book, you know, obviously picks this up from a historical perspective about having, you know, a largely um, kind of, you know, white reviewer base or, you, you know, a, a kind of a narrow set of expectations about what's acceptable as a minority or, or as a black American novel it is mirrored in contemporary discussions about who gets what in terms of prizes, but also who gets what in terms of uh, sales. And um, again, you know, you, the middle of the book tries to kind of think through um, the relationship between race, um, sales, and then literary prizes. And I wonder if you could kind of extend the analysis for me through those two uh, categories, really, in, in terms of, you know, what will shift to be crude shift units, <laughs> but then what will be, uh, you, you know, kind of um, valorized and given uh, value through prizes. Um, yeah. So, um the 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 surprising thing I found in this chapter, where I look at um, bestsellers and um, prize winners, um, the argument that I find there is um, it, it definitely continues the argument um, that I found uh, in the book review chapter, which is a very specific kind of novel by a non-white writer tends to be valorized um, in the in the prize system, but the the counterintuitive argument that I really foreground in this chapter on recognition or what um, sociologists you guys would call distinction um, is uh, there's this, I find that scholars, when they talk about distinction from a Bordeauxian perspective, uh, really tend to foreground this distinction between high and low. So high is like literary fiction or um, A24 movies, right? And uh, low or middle brow is stuff like Avengers, right? Or, um, you know, popular music. Um, but I found that um, when I add this third category in terms of a quantitative analysis of a corpus of novels written by Black authors, um, this corpus that has been developed by scholars at the University of Kansas, um, that the real story of post-war literary distinction, or again, that the, the making of high and low is really this intense anti-blackness that um, uh, it's true that, um, you know, uh, prize winners, they periodically um, allow um, novels by uh, minority writers to, to win, you know, win prizes. But when you look at the full system, what again, Bourdieu calls a literary field, uh, the making of high and low, um, they are less different from each other and more similar to each other in their, uh, rejection of blackness. And I find this both in the demographic data that um, they're just uh, prize winners are 91% white in this period and bestsellers are 98% white. But even before beyond that, and this is this is where the sort of machine learning text mining method becomes quite useful. I find that in terms of the, the kinds of stories they prefer, um, the, the tropes or whatever, that they are really similar, again, bestsellers and prize winners in their aversion to tropes, narratives, story types, themes that are very specific and particular to um, novels by Black writers. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, there's, we can definitely talk about uh, prize winningness and minorityness, but the, the story that I really want to tell in that chapter is um, whether you're looking at bestsellers or prize winners, I think it would surprise people to know that Again, they are more similar to each other than different in their mutual aversion to um, 
uh, blackness. Um, and I guess the way that we might I might be able to connect this more directly to your question is um, is when prize winners give novels to say black writers, yeah, they have a very specific kind of black story that they have in mind. Um, again, like like book reviewers, um, and and that's that's a tiny part of black literature. Um, and again, that's and 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 that that taste is very similar to bestsellerdom, and that's why there's so few black bestsellers. One way of thinking through all of this, I, I guess, is that this is a story of um, the publishing industry and, and kind of you know failures. That, you know, you flag Bourdieu and, and and the kind of the literary field, but um, I, I think there is you know a, a story, and, and it runs through Morrison and, and her role. Um, as, as as a publisher as well as a as a writer as well, but you, you know it, it's a story of a, I guess a kind of you know um, a, a set of institutional failures um, of the publishing industry. At the same time, I was incredibly taken with, and you, you know this is partially because I'm an academic, but I was incredibly taken with the final chapter, which talked about the university, the role of you know whether we call it the reading list or the canon or, you know, what, what is, what is taught and, and what is given kind of status. And what, what was fascinating about this was on the one hand, you present a historical analysis of this period, this, this moment called uh, that you refer to as the, as the canon wars over um, contemporary um, as was contemporary literature. But then at the same time um, you're telling the story of this continued almost you know kind of perpetual um racial inequality that is just there in the publishing industry that you know irrespective of um what academics are saying matters and what has value you, you know the, the the same kind of problems that you'd identified um at the beginning of the period the book covers are there right at the very end and i wonder if you could kind of un- unpack that um you know that strange kind of um, divergence, really, you know, as um, institutions that tell us what uh, is, is valuable uh, are engaged in, you know, really kind of serious struggles to kind of change what counts and what doesn't. The industry that is, uh, you know, kind of providing them with the material is not changing at all very much. Yeah, it's funny. I, I have so much to say about this because I'm also an academic, you know, and I think we can, you and I can talk about this quite a bit. <laughs> Um, I guess the first, the way I, I would re- frame my response is, um, uh, yeah, this, this book, I guess, has two major arguments. One is really about the publishing industry. And I would agree with your take that all these problems begin with the publishing industry, that um, the problems we see in bestsellerdom and, you know, prizes, it, they flow from, you know, the publishing industry's uh, problems. And um and yeah, so the, the 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 first major argument of the book is something about uh, institutional failure, and that that's that's the reception to that has been really cool. Um, I've talked to a lot of writers who have had a chance to read the book, and I wrote um, an op-ed in the New York Times where I sort of summarize some of the book's arguments. So that that part I think um, is really for people who study this stuff, and also for writers and editors and publishers. Um, that's really the substantive part of the argument. But um, as you point out, um, the other part of the argument is really for academics. Um, it's sort of a meta critique of the way that we studied this problem. And again, I just find a lot of problems that um, 
help perpetuate the problem when you know the people charged to understand the problem have not really understood understood the problem correctly. And um, so yeah, so and I guess most of the people listening to this podcast are academics. So, you know, this is a little bit wonky, but um, I, I do want to get into it because I think it's important because as you say even if this is about uh, a story about academics, we're in charge of determining what kinds of books and works of culture have value, which have social ramifications. So um, just to summarize a major argument, um, which is a very strong argument, and I think the most polemical part that people have been responding to, I I basically take on uh, 30 years of scholarship to say that we've completely misread um, this post-war period and the so-called canon wars were very successful in impacting the academy, but were extremely uh, ineffective in transforming the cultural field. And the obvious paradox here is the the, the canon wars, their, their purpose was to really have impact on society, not just change the academy. But the argument I make is that we've mistaken these changes that we see locally in the academy, partly because we're in the academy, this is what we see every day, for progress in society more generally, um, which um, which which is a problem because if nothing is changing in the bigger social world, it doesn't really matter what's really changing the academy, at least in my opinion. Um, I think um, what happens in the academy is of second-order interest to what happens in society. And the, the bigger problem is... Um, in that misunderstanding then helps perpetuates this the bigger problem in that if we believe the problem has been solved we stop actively working on it we just believe things are okay um and i and i just i it, the book mounts just marshall's tremendous evidence to say that um this this multiculturalism narrative and i have all these quotes you know non-ironic quotes by leading scholars to say that you know multiculturalism was a victory etc and the the scholarship has turned into a direction to say that, um, you know, uh, how successful is multiculturalism, you know, um, multiculturalism, you know, is itself problematic as a term. But again, the problem is that um, we assume something happened in society, right? And now we're left with a sort of meta critique over uh, terminology and, you know, uh, critique over the language of diversity and so forth. But again, it assumes that something did happen. And again, I marshal a lot of evidence to say that maybe nothing happened. Um, and that's a significant problem that uh, we're living with today. And again, I think that's why um, in the current moment, we've been so blindsided by things like Oscar So White, Publishing So White, because, you know, we're surprised. We're saying like, oh, we thought, you know, that that all worked out by the 90s, you know, that everything was fixed. And People again, I think, are caught off their back heels, you know, you know, shocked at this, you know, so-called rise of you know white nationalism and culture. And again, I think what my history shows is that it never went anywhere. You know, it's not a resurgence; it's just the continuance that we're only starting to notice again. Um, and again, I think that this problem has to be addressed. And um, anyways, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you about. You know, I've had a lot of interesting debates with people um, on Twitter and social media. Where um, you know, I think that uh, I think one response has been, you know, people buy the argument, but people still say, you know, what we do as scholars is really important. The canon wars were really important. I, I, I just, my own perspective is, I'm just, I just, I, I'm dubious of that position. I, I you know, I, I think what we do as scholars is important, but to say that it's, I think we just overstate its importance. 
um, that if if we're not actively having impact on society, then we're failing in some way. But I've had a lot of you know good faith arguments and debates with people on social media, other professors, to say that who really believe that you know social progress in the university is is really really important, and the canon wars were really successful. But again, I would I just I just disagree. Yeah, it, it, it's tricky, isn't it? That you, you know, um, which literary works are, are kind of selected not just to be valued, but you know, you've used that kind of crucial term to you know to be consecrated and um, you know to be to be given the kind of status as as being you know worthy of not just study but you know almost institutionalization in, in, in some cases as being you know core text or standard readings or, or whatever you know really does matter to. Um, what is valued in society and which, you know, stories, which social groups, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, there is this persistent problem of just a lack of change in, in the publishing industry. And, and, and again, you know, it, it's interesting that the things you you flagged with these broader cultural production um, shocks like, you know, Oscar So White or whatever. And, you know, to an extent, there are other parts of the Academy that, kind of saying yeah of course <laughs> that's how the system works why would you expect anything to be different at all and my inner cultural sociologist is like well we should finish there that's a great kind of moment to conclude on but i think that would do a slight injustice to the book and you know I, i've stressed this repeatedly throughout our conversation that this is still you know a literature book you know this is still a, a humanities book and, and that really comes to, to the fore if we return to Morrison, and in particular, you kind of offer a, a close reading of, of, of Beloved by, by Tony Morrison, almost as a way of kind of like talking about computational methods, which I found fascinating and intriguing. Um, and, you know, if we're thinking about digital humanities, if we're thinking about uh, quantitative analysis, a close reading would not be the kind of first place we, we, we might start. We'd probably start with, uh, you know, the numbers we talked about, you, you know, the, the kind of lack of change over time, um, the, you know, particular terms that come up repeatedly with, you know, negative connotations, et cetera, based on race. So I suppose I've got a kind of a two-parter. One is, you, you know, what is your um, reading of Morrison's Beloved and, and how do you use it to think through computational methods? But I suppose I, I'm also intrigued as, as to, to why you rounded up, why you kind of finished the book with that, you know, uh, as I might speculate, as a way of kind of returning to to literary studies, uh, maybe as a way of kind of, you know, reminding potential readers that um, this is still, you know, kind of literary studies. It's not comp sci or, or cultural sociology. Um, yeah, thanks for that. I, I've been looking forward to our conversation, Dave, um, because you are a sociologist and as, as we were talking about um, before we started this conversation, if, if this book can be of interest or of use to uh, social scientists at all, um, that would be awesome. I was actually inspired by um, a couple of great cultural sociology books from the 80s that were um, much more sociological. They were um, studies of the book industry and were very interview heavy. And I think there's another version of this book that would be really cool that does more of that you know, ethnographic, really rigorous sociological work. Um, like questions that my book does not answer are things like, what about agents, right? Like, why aren't there more black editors, right? Like, what are the sociological processes that, you know, like much more um, on the ground institutional? Um, so uh, so thanks for that. And, and I really um, think, yeah, there's, 
there's another version of this book that would be great that's much more ritually sociological. But it's true that um, it's mainly for um, humanities, literature, and cultural studies folks. And um, yeah, as you intuit, um, I end the book with a close reading of Toni Morrison's Beloved, which for many reasons that we've been talking about, and I talk about this in the book as well, is really the most important book, uh, post-war American novel about race. And I, I ended partly strategically in that I wanted to remind readers, even skeptical readers, that this problem at heart is a problem about reading books and interpretation and meaning in specific novels. Um, but beyond just strategically, I found Morrison's novel a great book to end with in that, to me, it models in really interesting ways the kind of methods and insights that the book more broadly is trying to advance, um, including the quantitative parts. And I guess I would uh, mention most specifically that um, probably the most one of the most famous lines that scholars always talk about is this line where a character says, um, if you can't read, they can beat you. And scholars have taken this as a call in the 80s and 90s as like the power of reading, right? That by reading texts in a new way, this goes back to the canon wars, that you can disturb conventional um, uh, conventional thought, that you can really resist regimes of power and so forth, that reading is a really empowering process. But what really blew my mind is that the, literally the next line in the novel that the character speaks is, if you can't count, they can cheat you. And I just spent a lot of time in scholarship, and it blew my mind that scholars always cite the first part of that quote about reading and completely ignore the second part um, about the importance of counting and the importance of math and quantitative reasoning. And that to me seemed like such a great um, analogy or, you know, um, metaphor for the lacuna in the scholarship that we've, you know, we've taken beloved as the, um, the, the rallying cry for, um, a contemporary study of race and culture, like Morrison's beloved is so important and it models a way of reading as really central to the humanities as a way to critique, uh, racial inequality and racial oppression. Uh, but, but again, all along in this novel, there's been, literally in the next sentence, right? Testifying to the importance of quantitative analysis and quantitative reasoning. Um, and I just, through my close reading of Morrison, I really want to draw that out to say like, hey, like this novel that is at the center of these narratives of multiculturalism and literally the reason why we exist as scholars of literature and race is asking us to also combine um, qualitative and quantitative forms of reasoning and critique. Um, I just... And I thought it would be really convincing to, you know, end with this novel that, you know, scholars, we all love so much and is so important to us. It's so foundational for what we do um, to say, you know, bringing all this quantitative and computational methods is really not alien at all to American fiction, to Morrison, to black writing. It's, it's been there all along. And, you know, I just I just I thought it would be most convincing to end the book by saying or showing how. These new methods, they don't have to disrupt or um, unravel everything that we've been doing for 30 years or, you know, with this 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 body of, of literature, that it's really um, a synthesis of perspectives that that to me are innate or imminent within um, American fiction, the thing that we study. So that's that's why I did it. 
just to wrap up, this is uh, probably seems a bit of a mean question given um, you've produced this this wonderful new book. But um, what are you working on next? The kind of you know the the, the academic question is is never you know uh, <laughs> how do you think this book has gone? It's always so. What are you doing next? And in that spirit, what what, what are you doing next? I mean, it, it strikes me that there's a rich set of possibilities um, in these uh, computational approaches, but equally. I can imagine that you know a, a book like this uh, might give you the the kind of moment to say, well, you know, I've gone in that direction. Maybe I'll do something else. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I feel done <laughs> with um, <clears throat> post-war fiction publishing for now. It's funny that's you know, as, as you know, Dave, um, people always want you to talk about the thing that you did like five years ago, which yeah. is kind of frustrating, yeah. you know. Um, but so, so yeah, I, I feel pretty done with this, this, this set of issues. Um, I, 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 I'm really most interested in, um, lived contemporary culture, how people are experiencing it. I wanted to work on something a little bit more canonical, um, with a redlining book, because I thought that a good way to introduce controversial new methods is to work on stuff that is super canonical, what, what a lot of people care about. Um, but I'm kind of done with that. And I'm just really excited, like a lot of other people about, um, you know, social media, the internet, user generated content. And I feel like these methods are so obviously well suited for um, at scale, like massive amounts of textual data. But it's it's a, a continuation of the redlining book insofar as um, this question of inequality, how it plays out in, um, in in a different kind of institutional context, what you could call the internet Right, the so-called whiteness of the internet and cultural production um, in a new milieu where ordinary, you know, millions of ordinary people are empowered to write fiction. I guess the question I have is, you know, when you open up the gates of culture to everybody, so like Reddit, Twitter, Wattpad, um, fan fiction, all that stuff, how does that change older dynamics of racial inequality? So, yeah, I'm working on a bunch of projects that are looking at um internet platforms, um, user-generated content, but still thinking about this question of, of race and racial inequality. Um, specifically, you know, is the internet a horrible place? Like, certainly it is in some ways, you know, but is it also an empowering place where, you know, new perspectives more easily can enter the discourse? Um, I guess like this massive question that everyone cares about, right? Like, what is the internet doing to our cultural discourse? Um, that's kind of where I'm heading right now. And um, yeah, it's, it's both, I feel kind of done with publishing and fiction, um, but is, is a continuation of the conceptual questions I, I study in the book. When you visit Arizona, Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.